When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, quick note before we get started today. Mike, Miles, and I are trying to get Jan Anthro into the ears of more listeners, and we need your help. If you like what we're doing, please take a minute to rate or review us on iTunes. It really helps to get the word out. If you're listening to this right now on an iPhone, here's how you can do it. Go to your Purple Podcasts app, click Search, find Generation Anthropocene, and then click on the tab Reviews. From there, you can rate and review us. And if you've already reviewed us, the team thanks you from the bottom of our GeoNerd hearts. And the planet thanks you, too. Also, if you have other ideas for how we can grow our listenership, please get in touch. Email us at genanthropocene at gmail.com. All right, party people, it's that time again. Time to go back to the beginning. How far back? 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where every week we bring you stories about people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang. One of the fundamental debates about the Anthropocene is whether there's a specific moment in time when humanity crossed a threshold and became a geologic force. On the show, we explore a lot of the ways humans are transforming the planet, how we harness nutrient cycles, reshape entire landscapes, and jumble up Earth's biota. But there's no getting around the fact that one of the most important ways we've altered the planet is through greenhouse gas emissions. Mike Osborne is Jen Anthro's resident expert on climate. He recently heard about a research paper that's being published today in the journal Nature. For the first time, climate scientists have been able to pinpoint when and where industrial era emissions began warming the planet. But as Mike explores in the second half of the show, there's actually a much more complicated and underappreciated history of human influence on the climate system. Here's Mike. When did global warming as we know it actually begin? This question is harder to answer than you might think because our records of past climate are incomplete. Paleoclimate is the branch of science that looks at natural fluctuations in the Earth's climate system. So it deals with questions like, why does the Earth go into and out of ice ages? Or why do we periodically have really strong El Nino events? The hope is to have a better grasp of natural climate variability so that we can understand what global warming is going to do on top of that. If we can refine our understanding of the past, we can use that information to calibrate and test the climate models that forecast our future. Full disclosure here, I actually did my PhD studying paleoclimate. Back when I was still in grad school, I got to be friends with a guy named Kaustub Thermalai. 
He has an awesome mustache, and he's currently doing a postdoc at UT Austin. Earlier this year, Cowstub told me he was working on a huge project with a big consortium of other paleoclimate scientists. This group wanted to take all the records that cover the last several hundred years and try and tackle the question of when industrial emissions first started having an impact. They looked region by region to see where on the globe the warming signal first shows up. Their study has just been published in the journal Nature. Kalstub himself had a somewhat minor role, but I decided to call him up so I could get more context for this project. This is quite a huge deal in terms of the effort to try and make sense of all these disparate records that are out there. And the idea is that we really still don't have complete coverage from instrumental measurements across the earth. If you go back to even, you know, the mid-19th century, 1850 or so, we, we just don't have enough records. So we are looking towards the proxy records to try and figure out what they can tell us. And so this, this is a really unique and sort of huge effort to try and figure out when exactly global warming due to the industrial era began. So, okay, I think people would be surprised to learn that we don't have an answer to that yet. I mean, nobody had ever set out to ask that question before. When did global warming begin? Surely there's previous research on this. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, they're limited to when we have global coverage of instrumental measurements. Here's the basic problem. Back in the 17 and 1800s, there just weren't many weather stations around the world. It wasn't until after World War II that people started sticking thermometers in the ocean, setting up buoy arrays, and eventually launching satellites to measure climate from space. But the Industrial Revolution, which was when we first ramped up our use of fossil fuels, began around the 1750s. So there's like 150 or 200 years with very few direct measurements. The lead author on this study is a scientist named Narely Abram, who's in Australia, I asked Kalstub to introduce me to Narely, and we connected over Skype. I'm based at the Research School of Earth Sciences at the Australian National University. I'm a climate scientist, and I look specifically at climate change over the last sort of one to 2,000 years so that we can put recent changes into perspective. I just want to pause for a second to say, even though direct measurements of climate before the 20th century are pretty sparse, that doesn't mean climate change isn't real. At this stage, the goal of the science is to improve resolution. If we can be more specific about how the system has responded to greenhouse gases in the past, then we might be able to improve our forecasts of the future. But there are gaps in our knowledge, which is why scientists continue to collect records from around the world. If you're talking about the Arctic and the Antarctic, most of our information comes from ice cores. For the tropical oceans, we've got information from corals. From the, the mid-latitude uh, land masses, we've got a lot of information from tree rings. One of the reasons this new study is important is because we now have a critical mass of paleoclimate records. This means we can look at when and where the different regions of the Earth first started feeling the effects of industrial-era emissions. Kalstub's role in this study was to apply a technique that would pinpoint when the warming trends emerged. The fancy term for it is called a change point analysis. The change point analysis is, is kind of very simply put, uh, if you look at a human's growth, and you know, if you say, when does a human person grow the fastest? And if you apply this change point analysis, it would pick out adolescence, because that's when you have the most crazy changes. Did you really uh, just say ad adolescence? 
That's how Indians say it. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we talk, uh, this happens. Something new, right? <laughs> it's adolescence, surely. How do you say puberty? Puberty. Okay, I had a fifth grade teacher who said puberty, uh, and it's to this day makes me giggle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so adolescence. Yeah. So the adolescent part of your of your life would be the part of your life where you see the highest rate of change in terms of growth. And so the change point analysis would pick that point out. So that's what it tries, tries to do with these records, is, to, is it looks into how and when, more so when, uh, you started warming. And when we average these records, we get one particular temperature time series per geographical region. Give a sense of what a region might be. So like Asia, Africa, and so forth, Indian Ocean. So we had uh, the oceans, five different oceans, and each one of the continents had its own uh, set of people looking into what are those reconstructions that went on over the last 2,000 years. So each one basically gives you a composite record. So there's a definitive record for the Indian Ocean. There's one record for Asia. And that's based on all of these other records that are inside that particular geographical region. You looked at it and said, when did uh, each of these regions hit global warming puberty? That is right. When did these start reaching global warming puberty. So what we found was that in some parts of the world, uh, the onset of this industrial era warming was actually remarkably early. So in around about the 1830s is when this warming first began. And, and that was really quite a surprise to us to see that it was something that was detectable so early on in the climate record. In the first few decades after the Industrial Revolution began, the initial bump in CO2 was around 10 to 20 parts per million. Compare that with the 1900s, where we added another 70 or 80 ppm. Since the CO2 bump at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is so small in comparison, the researchers didn't expect to see a warming signal in the mid-1800s. This change point shows up for both the tropics and across the Northern Hemisphere. Then when we go and look at the Southern Hemisphere, we do see quite a distinct lag, actually, in the, in the reconstruction. So for um, places like um, Australasia and South America, it's really not until around about the turn of the century, so about 1900, where um, we can see this onset of industrial era warming. For the most part, the climate model results were in agreement with the paleoclimate observations. But one discrepancy was this lag in the Southern Hemisphere. CO2 mixes well in the atmosphere, so there's no obvious reason why the bottom half of the globe should warm slower than the top half. It's something that if we go and look at climate models, um, they don't produce this southern hemisphere lag. So I think this is something that the community, both the paleoclimate scientists, but also the climate modelers, we really need to come together and figure out what on earth is going on there. It's not clear what we should make of this lag. We have more records from the Northern Hemisphere, so it could be that we just need more Southern Hemisphere reconstructions. But it could also be that the climate models are missing something. In the Southern Hemisphere, there's more ocean, less landmass, and a different configuration of the continents, so the climate dynamics may operate differently. As Narrowly said, there's clearly more science to be done. But overall, most of the globe shows a warming signal that starts in the 1830s. And when you step back from it, one of the most important conclusions is that parts of the climate system may respond to CO2 ups and downs faster than we might think. And I think that has some important implications when we're talking about where are greenhouse gas emissions going in the future. And, and if we can sort of make efforts to reduce 
the levels of, uh, of emissions, then there is potential that that could actually have sort of, at least in some aspects, some parts of the climate system, there could be some rapid paybacks for anything that we can do to sort of slow down warming. This study represents a big step forward for the paleoclimate community. However, this doesn't actually answer the question of when humans started changing the climate. This study is all about industrial-era CO2. But what if we started changing the climate way earlier than that? Like thousands of years before we built combustion engines and power plants? There's an idea out there that's sometimes called the Early Anthropocene Hypothesis. It was first put forth about 13 years ago by climate scientist Bill Rudiman. Rudiman is mostly retired now, but I was able to reach him at his home in Virginia. Heads up, our phone connection wasn't very good, and in places the audio quality is a bit rough. What I've been working on for about 15 years now is the issue of how much of an effect on greenhouse gases and on climate early farming had long before the uh, Industrial Revolution. Let's talk Ice Ages for a second. Over the last 2.7 million years, there have been about 50 transitions into and out of ice ages. Climate scientists call these glacial-interglacial cycles. Glacial periods are the ice ages, and the interglacials are the warmer periods in between. I mentioned at the top of the show that paleoclimatologists look at the climate of the past, right? Well, this is the really big picture stuff. Paleoclimate on super long timescales of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. On these timescales, the pattern is remarkably consistent. Glacial interglacial cycles are governed by small variations in how the Earth orbits around the Sun. Our planet has been whizzing around the solar system for a long time. And given enough time, the Earth can wobble on its axis. The axis itself can be more tilted. And our specific pathway around the Sun can deviate just a bit. The net effect is to change how and where planet gets bathed by the sun's radiation. The redistribution of energy can set off a chain reaction that plunges us into and out of ice ages. But, and this is the really interesting part, today the earth should be on its way into a glacial. In the early days of civilization, our species took the first steps towards staving off an ice age. All other things being equal, we should be heading into an ice age right now. So what happened? Bill Rudiman was the first to offer up an explanation. The start of my hypothesis was when I saw that in this interglaciation, the greenhouse gases did decrease for a few thousand years, say between 10,000 and 7,000 or 6,000 years ago, just like they did before, but then they started to increase. Scientists like Bill can use ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica to study the ancient atmosphere. These cores contain trapped air bubbles that are thousands to millions of years old. If you compare the atmospheric composition of the past with the zigzag of glacial-interglacial cycles, the records show that when the Earth is heading towards a glacial period, greenhouse gases like CO2 and methane begin to drop. But that's not what happened five to 7,000 years ago. 
Instead, the cores show that there's a small increase in greenhouse gases. Okay, so that's observation number one. The greenhouse gases are going up when they should be going down. Observation number two comes from the archaeological record. Archaeologists identify a number of new sites that began around five to 7,000 years ago. In fact, recorded history doesn't even really exist until 5,000 years ago. This is before the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, Egypt, and the Indus Valley. Now, it turns out it's surprisingly difficult to know what global population was back then, but the archaeological record suggests that starting five to 7,000 years ago, suddenly there were a lot more people on the planet. Humans were starting to get much better at growing food. When you devise a new way to grow food, you feed lots of people, and the better fed people are, the faster they prosper and multiply and spread. So what you can see in Europe and in China, a really rapid increase in archaeological site numbers in the few hundred to 1,000 years after agriculture arrives, much faster than people had ever suspected. Which brings us to observation number three. The spread of agriculture can affect greenhouse gases in a few different ways. One way is through deforestation. It's, it starts to increase in, in an anomalous way about 7,000 to 6,000 years ago. And that's the time when humans began to clear forests in large amounts. You needed to cut the forest to let the sunlight in to grow the crops or to have pastures for uh, livestock. So there's increasing evidence of uh, major clearance beginning seven to 6,000 years ago in China and in Europe. Remember, this is not agriculture like we have it today with crop rows, industrial fertilizers, and tractors. This is old school agriculture. Crop yields would have been low, so you'd need a lot more land, which means you're cutting down a lot more trees. Another way early farmers were adding greenhouse gases was by building rice paddies, which generate a ton of methane. And the other source of methane tied to humans is tending of livestock. Livestock process a lot of uh, vegetation through their guts and emit methane. So in addition to cutting down forests and flooding rice paddies, early agriculturalists were also breeding more cows, sheep, oxen, and other livestock, all of which produce greenhouse methane. So when you add it all up, as crazy as it sounds, all of this was enough to stop glaciation dead in its tracks. When the climate system was naturally set to cool, the early farmers unknowingly added just enough greenhouse gases to give the climate a little temperature bump. The end result is that we've had an unusually stable climate for the past five or 6,000 years. And just to reiterate, the time period we're talking about covers all of recorded history. We stopped the glaciation from getting underway, but for the early agricultural period, we didn't drive greenhouse gases high enough to cause problems in the other direction. We just uh, made it a time of climate stability, and that's the way it was referred to all the way through the 1900s. That this interglaciation, the last 10,000 years, is a time of natural climate stability. Well, it's still partly natural, but it's also, uh, in considerable part, it's, it's the coincidence of what we were already doing to climate. So from that point of view, 1850 is the time when something really different starts to happen, when, when we just really start to run roughshod over the climate system.
For Bill Rudiman, the onset of the industrial era is still an important turning point in history. At several points in our conversation, he impressed upon me that in no way does his hypothesis take away from the serious concerns about today's skyrocketing rates of greenhouse gas emissions and global temperature rise. His views on global warming are entirely aligned with the mainstream consensus. But Rudiman's hypothesis, which is increasingly accepted by most paleoclimatologists, puts the story of human influence on climate in a much different light. I think it is really an amazing fact that we have brought those glaciations to an end. I mean, there is substantial agreement among mainstream scientists that there can't ever be another northern hemisphere glaciation as long as carbon dioxide values are as high as they are now, and they're going to get higher, not lower. So we've stopped it. I think that's just amazing. A 2.75 million year natural cycle of growth and decay of ice sheets, and it's all over. We've stopped it. I don't think that gets the attention that it should. My my hypothesis adds the wrinkle that we didn't stop it beginning 1850. We stopped it beginning seven or six or 5,000 years ago. The paper that was published today in Nature, the study that Nerley and Kaustub helped write, is careful to state that the goal is to examine industrial-era greenhouse forcing. But the background climate had probably already been modified by thousands of years of human activity. Which makes you wonder, what exactly do we mean when we talk about natural climate variability? Here's Kaustub again. And I think that's, that's the real hook here, is that, A, first of all, we've pieced together using this crazy disparate paleoclimate records, we've actually managed to figure out when there was a collective response. And I think that's really important. And at the same time, that you can put into perspective what has been happening from the anthropogenic effect on the whole. And uh, the other thing to realize here is that when you say staved off an ice age, that's also not binary. You have to ask by how much. And so the 20 ppm might have staved it off for about 2,000, 3,000 years. But currently, with industrial CO2, we pushed it off by more than 300,000 years. So that's something to think about. As we march into the future, it'll be an ongoing effort to better understand the past. But if we're talking about the Anthropocene, this accelerated and insane period in history, just think for a second about how our present moment will be bracketed in geologic time. If we look back, our species very likely staved off an ice age, and in doing so, inadvertently created several thousand years of climate stability in which civilization matured and mushroomed. If we look forward into the future, unconstrained greenhouse gas emissions will almost certainly drive the climate system into a hothouse that the planet hasn't seen for tens of millions of years. And here we are today, sitting right smack dab in the middle of this geologic transition, coming to terms with the fact that we're far more powerful than we ever could have imagined. That's it for the show this week. 
As a quick reminder, please take a minute to write a review for us on iTunes if you haven't yet. We'd really, really appreciate it, especially Mike, who's about to go on paternity leave. You can think about it as a proxy baby shower gift. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Trayer, and me, Leslie Chang. Thank you to our awesome intern, Isha Salian, who assists with production and makes our text chains way more fun with gifts. We also want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. 